I've entitled this section in the book of Luke, Discerning the Times. It's got three distinct teachings from Jesus in it. He's, he's wrapping up the time that he's been spending with his disciples, talking to them about what it means to be a disciple. And in the middle of those, the second one, he rebukes them because they can discern the weather, but they can't discern the time. And we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about that. But I want us to look at each one of these. First of all, we see that he's going to talk about Jesus coming to bring division. You, you might think that Jesus came to bring unity, to bring everybody together, to have harmony. But he came to bring division. And he's going to, tell, and he's going to say that in this, this passage. And I want to show you what he means as we take a look at it. Then he's going to talk to them about discerning the times. And finally, he's going to talk about making peace with your adversary. Rather than going to court where the judge might rule against you, make peace with your adversary before you get there. And I believe that he's using that as a larger analogy of the one to whom we must give an account. We, we are going to have to stand before God one day. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the connection that I think that Jesus is making. And so we pick it up, first of all, in verse 49, where Jesus says something that's a little hard to understand. In fact, as we look at this passage, he's got a little bit of an edge to him. When, when we think of Jesus, we, we think of him as, as churches present him. We think of little Jesus, meek and mild, which we could call the Sunday school Jesus. And maybe it's, it's, it's good to present Jesus that way to, to kids because God could be presented in a terrifying way. Do you know that in the 18, middle 1800s that all preachers preached hellfire and brimstone? They taught the wrath of God. That was their point. And when they gave altar calls, they said, the wrath of God is already on you. And if you do not receive Christ, you will face that wrath. You will be delivered from the wrath of God if you receive Jesus as your Savior. And that's true. And D.L. Moody, at one point, in around, somewhere around 1860 or so, somebody came up to him after a service and said, would you consider preaching the love of God in your message? And D.L. Moody says that was transforming to him, that he had never thought about, because that's not the way Christ was preached. The Jesus that was preached in the 1850s is different than the Jesus that is preached today. I'm not saying they're a different person. I'm simply saying it's different aspects of the same person. And today, the Jesus that is preached, I'm afraid, is more like the good deal Jesus. Try Jesus. He's a good deal. If you just try him out, it, it, it's a better way to walk. He'll help you if you just try him out. You know, like... Try this pizza, see if you like it. Like you tell a child, try avocado. You might like it, who knows? Try Jesus, you might like him, who knows? And I think maybe the pendulum has swung way over to Jesus as loving Jesus who will tolerate anything and the idea that the wrath of God is on you if you don't know Christ is never taught. We just don't hear it. Maybe we need to swing it back a little bit, bring it back to the middle. And what reminds me of that is the edge Jesus has as he's teaching here. He doesn't have that real soft kind of an edge that we would think about Jesus. He's got a, when you, when you study the teachings of Jesus, he's got a sharp edge to him. 
And he's talking about real things that are going to affect people's lives. And you can sense that and you can see it. And we see it here. In verse 49, he says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, that's quite a statement. And there are two different ideas that people have about what he means by Jesus sending fire on the earth. And both of them are accurate. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Our God's a consuming fire. In John 14, 26, Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you of all things and bring to remembrance all things that I have said to you. In Acts 2, 2 and 4, it says, and sudden, there suddenly came the sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. I have no idea what that's going to look like, by the way. Tongues of fire on each one of their, their heads and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues and they as they gave them utterances. John the Baptist said of Jesus, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to carry. Excuse me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Another place he said sandal straps not worthy undo. Uh, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now John goes on to say that his winnowing fan is in his hand and that he is going to gather the wheat into barns and he's going to burn the chaff. So when John says he's going to baptize you in fire, was he talking about the fire of the Holy Spirit, which alighted upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost, right? Which, which could be a sense of burning for Jesus, being on fire for Christ, living for him with everything that you have. And certainly there is a way that we can talk about the fire of God in our lives in such a way. If our God is a consuming fire, then may we be on fire for him. May we live our lives with an intensity, with a passion for the living God. And perhaps Jesus is making a reference to that when he says, when he says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, there's another thing that he could mean. He, he could mean the fire of the Holy Spirit, but he also could mean the fire of judgment. Peter tells us that this whole world is going to burn all of it one day. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth created and a new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven. Everything you own, everything you see, this entire world will be burnt with fire. Jesus is also the judge. Yes, he's the prince of peace, but he is the judge of this earth. And he is the one who will bring wrath upon the earth. The Bible says that during the tribulation period, men will hide from the wrath of the lamb. We don't think of a lamb too often being dangerous, that we need to hide from it. Jesus is a lamb, but he's a lion as well. He's a lion and a lamb. And sometimes we interact with Jesus like he's the lamb. And, and, and that might affect the way we live but do you understand he's also the lion? In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's one particular point 
where Lucy is interacting with Aslan. And she says, he's a lion. And someone said, is he tame? And Lucy said, he's not a tame lion. That's the idea. Our God, the Bible says, is a fierce God. What does it mean that God is fierce? These are things I think we should look at. These are things I think we should find out because we can't make God in our own image. We can't make God in the image that we want him to be. And people do that. Instead of taking what the Bible has to say about whom God is, I don't want to follow the image of God that someone makes. I want to follow the true and the living God. I want to know who he is, what he's about. We know he is all loving. He is all good. He is all pure. He, 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 and he loves us. But we also know that he's full of justice and that he will bring wrath and indignation upon men and women who do not follow him, who will not follow him. All of these are taught in the Bible. So when Jesus says, and quite frankly, I'm not sure how we can tell which one he's talking about. It seems to me because of the edge of the rest of these passages that Jesus would be talking about judgment. If I had to make a guess, I'm, I'm not going to. I think it could be either one. He's talking about one of them. If I have to make a guess because of the tone of his teaching now, I think he would be saying the fire of judgment. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Now listen to what he goes on to say in verse 50. But I have to be baptized with, uh, but, I have to be, uh, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So Jesus is talking about his death. To be baptized is to be immersed in something. Crucifixion is the most brutal form of death. It's, it is torturous. We get the word excruciating that comes from crucified. It means, it means to be put on the cross, literally. It is excruciating because that's what the idea comes from. And he says that he's in distress. So we know now already from our study in the book of Luke that he has set his face towards Jerusalem. We know he's determined to go and die there. We know he knows he's going to be crucified because he said it. And, and now he says, I'm distressed about it. I, I think he's distressed over the condition of Jerusalem, the condition of Israel, the condition of the people who haven't received him. Certainly he's distressed on the, the aspect of torture. Remember, Jesus was fully man and fully God. I, I don't know about 100% man and 100% God because that makes him 200% something. But he's fully man and fully God for sure. And as being fully man, he wouldn't want to go to the cross. He wouldn't want to, wouldn't welcome the pain, the suffering, the humiliation. He despised the shame of the cross, the Bible says. But when he gets to the Mount of Olives and he's coming into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, what we call the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday, he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, how I have longed to take you under my wings like a, like a hen would her chicks, but you would not. And because of that, you will be taken captive by every nation. He speaks of what will happen to them. And I think this all works to the distress that he has. I have a baptism I must be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And of course, that accomplishment brings freedom. That accomplishment brings transformation. Jesus will say upon the cross, it is finished. And when it is finished, then we will have our salvation. We will be able to receive him and find forgiveness. So then Jesus says to them, 
do you suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth? And I, it's interesting to me because I think we would all say, yeah, mm -hmm, I suppose that. You came to bring peace. You are the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings. But he said, I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, what does Jesus mean that there's going to be division? It means that the life that we live as Christians is so radically different than the world. We, I think the church makes a mistake when we try to take the Christian life and fit that in to the culture that we are living in. Our culture is quickly moving away from anything that we can be a part of. It is, it is quickly moving away from it. They identify us, they hate us, they propagandize us, and it's only going to get worse. As Christians, the world is not going to accept you. They will not accept you as you live for Christ. We are the restrainer that is in the world in the last days. We are restraining abortion. We are restraining divorce. We are restraining sin. We are, we are used by him to do that. And the world doesn't like it. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I'm sick of you preaching to me when you haven't even said anything to them yet? I've had that happen to me. They're like, I'm sick of you preaching. I'm like, I haven't even started yet. I was getting ready to, but I haven't even started. So when you get saved, I, 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 would, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would like to. How many of you have had trouble in your home? Give me a little nod. Because you gave your life to Christ. When, um, when, I got, when I came back to the Lord, I came back to the Lord at 19 years old, and I had a real good friend of mine named Keenan Boer. And this guy was, everything he did was, was, was all in. This guy was into rock and roll, you know, Led Zeppelin and Kiss and I can't remember all the other groups that he was into, but then he got saved. When he got saved, he just, everything into Christ. In fact, he was the one who, who called me and said, listen, he goes, oh, you just got saved. You got to go to church with me. And I knew what it was about. I'd been, I'd walked away from the Lord a year ago, a year before this. And I came back because he was so on fire. But his mom called me and said, Robert, I think that Keenan joined a cult. He just burned all his albums. He went outside in a pit and took all of his rock and roll albums and burned them. And his mom said, why didn't you give them away? He was like, no, I'm not going to give this to sin to someone else for someone else to do. There's just that, that edge. But it caused problems in his family. And it will cause problems in your family when you truly live for Christ. There, there are a lot of families in which it will. And Jesus says, I came to bring division. And he meant that. Because when we live for him, we live for him wholeheartedly. We live for him with everything. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Bible tells us that we should be equally yoked. Should not marry a non-believer. Don't marry. Don't marry a non-believer. Please don't marry a non-believer. Do you like the way I went from ordering you to begging with you? <laughs> marry, if you, you marry, wait, wait for someone who loves God as much, if not more, than you. Life will be so much easier. But when you give your life to Christ, there is division. And I want you to think about, we think about this in relation to America, but think about this instead in relation to Afghanistan. 
or Iran, where there's a revival happening, where people are getting saved in record numbers in those countries. And when they do, their lives are in danger. When, when they do, there is a division. And Jesus knew this. There's a division here and the division is getting greater. There's something going on in the world now where we, we and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, where we are accelerating towards the end. And, and there's a dividing that's taking place where people are making strong stands and we will have to make a strong stand for Christ. And when we make that strong stand, there will be a division and I think it's all over the world. And so in, in, Matthew, um, in Matthew 5, 10 and 11, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil, fall, uh, evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are we when we are persecuted for his sake. And I like at this point to talk to college students as well because you receive a special kind of persecution when you're in the classroom. Maybe identified as a Christian and then just mocked and, and, and your faith torn down and tore down. And I say to you, rejoice. Stand your ground, stand up for Christ, take it. It may be one of the only times in your life that you are really able to stand up for him and to take persecution for his sake. It is indeed an honor to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. And we should rejoice when it happens. Although I think we very rarely ever do. We're like, what a bummer. So he now talks about discerning the times. He turns to the crowds and he says, then he also said to the multitudes, he's been teaching his disciples. Now he turns to the multitudes and he says, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the West, immediately you say a shower is coming and it is so. And when you see the South wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it that you do not discern the times? If I gave you, if you, you just had in your mind what Jesus is like, the way Jesus interacts, the way he teaches, if I gave you that sentence, how many guesses would it take for you to think it was Jesus? Hypocrites, you can discern the weather, but you can't discern the time. Do you see what I mean by Jesus had an edge to him? And, it's, it, and, and, and we put him into the little Jesus, meek and mild, when really you've got God in the flesh with all authority speaking to men, expecting to be heard by it. And so why would he say you haven't discerned your time? Also, as he makes his way into Jerusalem, he makes a statement. He says, you did not know this your day of visitation. I think there are a couple of Old Testament passages, maybe more, that they should have known that the Messiah was on the scene. One of them is in the end of the book of Genesis. When Jacob is blessing his sons and he comes to Judah. Judah, it would not have been my choice, by the way, to choose to be one of the 12, the one of the 12 sons of Jacob to be the one who would, the Messiah would come from. And if you've studied Genesis 32, you know what I'm talking about. But our God's a God that does surprising things. And to Judah, he said, the scepter shall not depart until Shiloh has come. Shiloh was the place 
where the tabernacle had been. And when you study all the Old Testament passages, and I started to, to draw it all out today, and I thought, I don't need to do this right now, I'll do it later. But when you study the Old Testament passages, it becomes clear that Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah. The tabernacle is Christ. The shadow of the things that go on in the tabernacle is what Christ does. Just as the feasts speak of Christ, the tabernacle speaks of Christ, and everything in the tabernacle speaks of Christ. So when he says that Shiloh will not come until the lawgiver departs. So in the early 30s, or excuse me, the early 20s, this is the first century, in the early 20s, uh, the Romans took away the right of the Jews to rule over themselves. They gave them, they, they allowed them to continue to rule religiously, but they took away capital punishment from them and they made it a crime for them. And they believed, and you could go back and read this, they believed that the word of God had been broken. They knew what the, the promise said about Shiloh being there when the lawgiver, when the, law, when the scepter was removed from Israel. They knew what it meant. And they mourned and they wailed. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they mourned and wailed because God's word hadn't come true. But rather, they should have looked around and said, where's Shiloh? Where's the Messiah? They couldn't discern the times. There's also that great passage in Daniel chapter nine, the 70 weeks of Daniel, 70 sevens. It's in the context of weeks of years. They not only had weeks of days, one day of rest for every seven days, but they had weeks of years, one, day of one year of rest for the land and, seven, and six years of working, making a seven-year week for the land. But for 490 years, they didn't give it rest. They worked it every year and they didn't give the Sabbath rest. And so God took them into captivity for 70 years. He brought them in captivity for another reason, but he kept them in captivity for 70 years, telling them, I'm going to give the land the rest you owe it. You owe the land 70 years. I'm going to keep you out of the land for 70 years. So Daniel was reading Jeremiah. You can read it there in Daniel chapter nine. He's reading Jeremiah and he realizes 70 years is almost done. We've been in captivity for almost 70 years. We're about to go back. And he begins to pray about it. And an angel appears to him and tells him 70 sevens are determined for Israel and for Jerusalem. 490 more years. He was thinking about the 490 years they didn't give the rest to. And God says 490 more years are determined for Israel, for, for Jerusalem, to make an end to sin, to make an end of transgression. You read the list there, it's a pretty comprehensive list that everything's gonna come to its end. But after seven years, which is seven sevens, that's 49 years, the, the, the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. It took 49 years to rebuild the temple and the walls. They quickly did it and repaired them in Nehemiah's time, but it took 49 years for them to rebuild it. So he said there will be seven years and 62 years. The seven years was the rebuilding, and then 62 years after that brings it to 483 years. You can do the math later if you want to. I realize as I'm going through these numbers, you guys are like, okay, kind of following. So six, seven, sevens, and 62 sevens is 69 sevens. Seven times 69 is 483 years. Trust me, okay? I've done the math. I'm very bad at math, but trust me on this one, all right? I have it right. And then it says, from the command 
to go from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah will be 69 sevens, 483 years. You have the command given to Nehemiah in Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls and the city of Jerusalem. That's the only command that fits. There were four commands given in history to, to go and restore the, 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 uh, the temple, which is interesting. We know the date of every one of them given by Artaxerxes, uh, given uh, that I forget all of the kings that was given that, that gave that command, but there are four of them. The only one that fits is the one to Nehemiah because it says to rebuild and restore the city and the walls. You had 483 years from the time that command was given and you come to 30 AD. The point is, and some people pinpoint it even greater. Some people go back, we know the day. It actually gives us the day the command was given. And they go through it and they do something with, one, with zero. What do you do with zero, by the way? When you're counting down and coming up into an, a, a, a new, you know, from 80 to B, what do you do with zero? But they actually will come to the spring of 32 when they say that Jesus was marching into Jerusalem on, the, on his triumphant entry. And that's why he said, you don't know this day, the day of your visitation. I don't know that we have to pinpoint it that much, but just to simply say, if you add the years, the Messiah was in Jerusalem. The Messiah was there. They should have known. They should have. And if you say, well, that's so calculated, there's nobody that believed it back in their day. Yes, they did. We know what rabbis taught. And they taught that the Messiah was going to be there. They were looking for the Messiah in the days of Jesus. They just didn't want it to be that guy because that guy wasn't on their side. They wanted to be somebody that was like them that had big boxes on their head and robes on and walked around super pious. But instead, Jesus put them down and told them they were full of hypocrisy. So they should have known. They should have known the word of God. These were the people entrusted with the word of God. They should have known. They should have discerned the time. Now, I do have a question. And that is, if Jesus were here in front of us today, if he were talking to the whole church, let's just narrow it down to churches that really have a relationship with Jesus. Would he say to us, hypocrites, you don't know the time. You guys can just determine the weather and watching the news guys on TV, I'm not sure we can. <laughs> but you can't discern the times. There are a lot of things that we could talk about in discerning the times. We could talk about men, the way people are, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. That's a lot of the church today. They're not, it's not about living for Jesus. It's about living for ourselves. It's about the self-help Jesus. Come to church. We can make your life better. Invite Jesus in and you can have a better life instead of dying for him. Jesus said this, he said, fall on the rock and be broken or the rock will fall on you and crush you. How's that for two choices? <laughs> I don't want to fall on the rock. Well, okay, the rock's going to fall on you then. I don't want the rock to fall on me. Then fall on the rock. Fall on the rock and be broken. Humble yourself before God. Two men went into the temple. Jesus told this parable. One of them stood afar off, wouldn't look up stood afar off from the altar. The altar is that big giant grate where they sacrificed animals on. And he, and he stared at the ground and he beat his chest and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And the Pharisee walks right up to the front and says, God, I thank you that I pray every day, that I tithe of all that I have, and that I'm not like that man. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. One of those men left forgiven and the other one did not. That's what God wants from us to discern the times, to understand where we're living and to live for him wholeheartedly. We could talk about other signs of the times because I believe we're living in the last days. But I think Israel is the super sign. And I just want to talk about that briefly. The nation of Israel, founded in 1948. God said in the book of Ezekiel, starting in chapter 36, that the land was going to be desolate. The land was taken over by the Turks 500 years ago. And they destroyed, they cut down every tree they could cut down and they salted the land. Now the land recovers after being salted. But when you cut down trees, there's nothing to hold the water. Everything just, gets, just erodes away. And so in the late, 1800, 19, uh, late, late 1800s, Jews began to return to Jerusalem and they began to purchase land in Israel. They bought swamp land, they bought desert land. They began to drain the swamps they began to plant trees. It was a movement for Israel to have a national land. And by the early 1900s, there were a few thousand Jews that were living in Israel. By 1948, there was hundreds of thousands. And today there are several million. And the Bible said the land would be desolate and that God would prophesy to the mountains. Read this in Isaiah 36. God will prophesy to the mountains. Get ready, be fruitful, for my people are about to come. The land went from being desolate. D.L. Moody talks about Jerusalem being totally desolate in the 50s. Uses that as an example of the opposite of heaven because it's so desolate. But then it says that God's gonna restore the land restore the fruitfulness of the land, and then restore the people to the land. And then there would be a nation that would be born again in a day, Isaiah said. And that's exactly what happened. In the, um, if you, you don't know the history of Israel, I'm not going to give a long, drawn-out history here, but if you don't know the history of Israel, the, um, the, the British kingdom had control over almost the entire world in the 18, late 1800s. They began to give back land. They began to move out of areas. They made the Balfour Agreement. You look it up, Balfour Agreement with Israel to give them the land from the Mediterranean Sea, all of what is Jordan today and even beyond, even what would be into Iraq. And then they switched it and they gave everything that is on the other side of the Jordan River to the Jordanians. That became Jordan today. That's Jordan today. They backed away from their Balfour Agreement. And then in 1948, they had given the land over to the UN. And the UN had said by England's command or by England's desire that Israel and the Palestine and, and, Pal and the Palestinians could have a homeland. Israel took them up on it. The Palestinians, unfortunately, and by the way, there's a revival happening. A lot of Palestinians are getting saved today. A lot of Palestinians in Israel are getting saved today. There's a huge Christian section in Palestinians. So I don't want you to think that there's some kind of a hatred against Palestinians because there's not. But the Palestinians said no. Not as long as Israel is a nation. 
we will not be a nation. And they have stuck to their guns, by the way. They will not establish a nation while Israel is a nation. They want Israel destroyed. And so the land was given, parts of it was given to Israel. Immediately there was a war and Israel took land. In 67, the war expanded and Israel took more land. In 73, the Yom Kippur War, they almost lost. They should have lost, by the way. They were attacked by, by Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Egypt and Syria were, were held back almost miraculously, but Jordan rolled in and they were on their way to Tel Aviv. Had they taken Tel Aviv, they would have taken the whole thing. You, again, you can read this stuff in, in 1973, but they thought it was a trap because they thought they're being stopped on the east and I mean in the south and they're being stopped on the north and they turned around and left. They just turned around and left. It was almost taken from them, but they ended up taking that land. Let me give you a couple of passages that talk about Israel being restored. First of all, let me, let me quote Jesus. Here he's a prophet. And Jesus is talking about them being destroyed by the Romans. And this is in Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all nations. Happened in 70 AD. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jerusalem came under Israeli control again in 1967. And the only part of Jerusalem that's not under Israeli control is the Temple Mount. And in the last few months, Jews have been allowed to go up on the Temple Mount to pray. The first time since 70 AD, Jews are praying on the Temple Mount. That's all undercover. They can't go up and make a big show of it. But the police, the Jewish police are looking the other way now. They never did before. They're looking the other way now. And you will see this in the news soon. I'm, I'm going to give a prophecy right now. All right, not a prophecy, but a prediction. Soon you're going to see the Temple Mount explode over this. It, it, it is going to explode. But the temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount and it will be under their control. And what Jesus said will be true. The time of the Gentiles will come to the end. The question is, what's the time of the Gentiles? That's the church age, I believe. It says the same thing in Romans chapter 11, but it says it this way. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. They are blinded from receiving the Messiah until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and they will all be saved. Now, I don't know what all means when it says they'll all be saved, whether it's every single one of them, all of Israel, or whether it's the majority of them, but I know this, it can't be a few. You're not gonna say and all will be saved and it's just a few, it's a handful. When all are saved, it's a lot. The vast, vast majority of them. Listen to um, what it says in Zechariah 12, 3. And, I sh and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all people. All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, though all nations of the earth gather against it. Ezekiel 38 and 39 says all the nations of the world are going to turn against the nation of Israel. Listen to what it says in Joel 3, 1 and 2. For behold, in those days at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the Jezreel Valley. It's got the mountain of Megiddo next to it. It's the battle of Armageddon. And I will bring all nations against it in the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom you have scattered among the nations, which Jesus said was going to happen by the Romans, and Jews were scattered. That's why they were all around the world. But because of their, the, the unique aspect of the law, they kept their identity. And then he says this, they have also divided my land. What a statement. Knowing that Israel is being divided today between Palestinians and Israel, they have also divided my land, that God's going to bring judgment on them because of that. Let me just read you a couple more. Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. It shall come to pass on that day, the Lord shall set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elar, from Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations. He's going to set in Israel up in the last days a banner for the nations. And I will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. We have seen that happen in our lifetime. Israel is a nation today. The Jews have returned to Jerusalem. Are you discerning the times? We are, I'm not saying Jesus is coming back tomorrow, by the way, but I'm telling you, let's redeem the time because it's close. Let me give you one more, Zechariah 12, 3. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. It's going to be the center. Joel Rosenberg likes to say, Jerusalem is the epicenter of all that God's doing. I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. All who would heave it away shall surely be cut to pieces, though all the nations of the earth will be gathered there. So I guess I gave you that one twice. All right, so it was important. You guys didn't get it once, you got it twice. All right. Um, so now Jesus, as he talks about them discerning the time, he now turns to them and talks to them about making peace with their adversary. The interesting word, the word for adversary here is the same word that is used for Satan, by the way, which is interesting. He's not using it in that context. Remember, we don't know Satan's name. Lucifer is not his name. Lucifer is Venus. It's the morning star. God's mocking him in Isaiah when he says, how you have fallen from earth, O morning star. He wanted to be the morning star, but he isn't. How you have fallen to earth, O morning star. And the King James Bible translated that Lucifer, which is the Latin word for Venus. We don't know his name. We don't know what his name is. He's the Satan, the, the, the opposer, the adversary. He's the accuser. That's the devil. He's called the accuser. He's the dragon in Revelation. He's the serpent of old in Genesis. He is the arch enemy of Jesus. And I love the fact that we don't know his name. So the next time somebody says to you, oh, well, I'm going to say the name of Lucifer. Say, go ahead. Say Venus all you want. That's not the name of Satan. I love the fact that the, the world thinks they know his name, but they don't know his name. We don't, we don't know the arch enemy's name. We know he's there though. And so Jesus says this. Yes. And um, well, let me see. Yeah. Okay. So Jesus says in verse 57, Make sure I'm in the right place here. Uh, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? He says, you hypocrites, you can't discern the time. And, and why of yourselves do you not judge what is right? Then he says, when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, simply someone who's your opponent, you're, they're your adversary, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you 
to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you in prison, I tell you, you shall not depart until you have paid every last mite. Now, that's just some good advice. If you're in a lawsuit, settle. Listen, suing someone, if you're, you're on the verge of suing someone, just listen. It's not worth the loss of sleep you're going to have. It would be better for you to be defrauded, the Bible says. Just give it up. You, you would pay to have good sleep. If I came up with a product that would guarantee you eight hours of refreshing, refreshing sleep every day, I'd be a billionaire. It's worth you giving up some money to have sleep. It's worth letting whatever family member you think is ripping you off from the inheritance, it's worth letting them have it to get sleep. But I think Jesus is doing something more than just giving us some really good advice. I, I think that he's saying, the wrath of God is on you. Make every effort that you can make to settle with him before you get to heaven, before you stand before the judge, because one day you will stand before him. I have one verse in closing. Jesus said in John 3, 36, and I quoted this earlier, he who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's, that's your condition if you don't know Christ. If you've never invited him in, if you've never received him. This is not an appeal to make your life better. It's an appeal for you to make peace with God because eternity hangs the balance. If he says, hey, look, make peace with your adversary because you'll pay for it the rest of your life. How about paying for it for the rest of eternity? Make peace with God because he is the lamb, but he also is the lion. He is the one who responds to the humble in a lowly, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for I am lowly and my burden is light. If you are humble and you come to him, he will receive you. But if you don't, then he will be the lion and he will be the judge. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage, which really is intense. And, and that we might be able to discern the times that we are living in. We want to be able to stand for you. We want you to fill us and use us and to make a difference in this world. We don't want to just invite you in so that we can move along in a, just kind of a passive way, but we want to stand strong for you. And Lord, I pray for those that are here today who have not made peace with you, that the wrath of God is upon them. And I pray that they would find you, humble themselves before you and receive you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.